The following content has been rated for mature audiences only. Viewer discretion is advised. Well, I'm not an expert. I'm not an authority. I'm someone who has been a murderer for almost 20 years. Maybe I should have killed four or five hundred people, then I would have felt better. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. There must be something in that. I showed emotion. You know what people said? See, you really can't get violent and angry. Welcome to The Squonk and the Hag, a podcast about murder, mystery, the supernatural, and even a conspiracy or two. Dun, dun, dun. My name is Mo. And I'm Kraken. Just a small disclaimer before we get into this episode that this story does involve violence against children. So if you are unable to listen to those types of stories, please do not continue with this episode. Welcome on in, everybody, to another episode of The Squonk and the Hag. Yes, hello. <laughs> With me, as always, is that one. I feel like that's a common nickname for me, is just that one. Hey, you. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, as we were just speaking, we do have a fun announcement to start off this episode. So this is our first episode of October, which means we can tell you guys that we are the podcast of the month for the podcast Nexus for October of 2023. And somehow I didn't ruin our chances for that. I don't know how that happened, but here we are. I don't, I don't, honestly, I don't know. I have no idea why people like us, but they do. So I'm not going to complain. Exactly. We'll just keep doing what we're doing and it'll, it'll be fine. I have a feeling we're just like... We're the examples of what not to do. Like, everybody's just like, okay, listen to these guys. Don't be like them. <laughs> Welcome to the world of podcasting. Today, you're all going to watch a how-to video on what to do and what not to do. You can just dissect this, and then we'll be taking notes later. <laughs> but, yeah, so I thought that was a really fun announcement. Um, if you guys don't know what the Podcast Nexus is, it is a Discord server all about podcasting. Hence the name. Uh, I am actually uh, um, one of the mods, which is why this kind of took me by surprise that they were like, yeah, it's you guys. I was like, wait, what? Really? Like, for real? I, did, I, did, I didn't think we would get this far. <laughs> wait, someone listened to the show? But, um, but yeah, so it is a really great community. Uh, has a lot of creators in a lot of different genres. Uh, everything from video games, actual play, audio dramas, true crime. Um, there are some about like um, mysticism and you know, like really, it's a it's a huge. Uh, oh yeah, there's a guy who does stuff all about .net. Like it's a really great community. It's a really fun time. Um, and then, you know, to get recognized in the community is exciting. Basically, it ain't called the podcast Nexus for nothing. <laughs> Truth. So, yeah, uh, we are the podcast of the month this month. Look at us go. Yay. Uh, additionally, uh, this is not set in stone, but there may be a missed week coming up here because I might have to. Well, I am traveling for work it's just whether or not i will be traveling on a day that we're supposed to record so i am going to the 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 fun city of troy michigan you sound very unsure about all of this and that kind of concerns me a little well i didn't realize troy michigan was a real place until i googled it Fair enough. Yeah, but that is a tie-in to this week's story, because this week's story starts in Michigan. Hey, who knows, maybe while you're there for work, you can travel and visit some of the places that's in this story. I don't know if you would want to or not, because I don't know the story, so... Well, uh, it's... His childhood was in Bay City, Michigan, which I'm not sure where that is, other than the fact that it's in Michigan. Fair enough. Yeah, so um, I'm not sure how far away, because I guess Troy is outside of Detroit. Uh, I don't know where Bay City is. I'm assuming it's probably close to a bay somewhere. Watch it be like landlocked and there's no water anywhere near it. 
You know, that's that's goals right there. I'm gonna buy a like a the first ghost town I can find find that's like in the Midwest, like just in the middle of the country, and name it like Seaside Resort or something like that. I don't know. Like we'll, we'll have something to do with the ocean, and like it'll all be like ocean theme, but there is no ocean. It's like dead center in the middle of the continent. Everything is de- is decorated to look like it belongs on a Hawaiian island, but there is no ocean or any water or ponds or anything anywhere. There's like a sprinkler. Better yet, it's in Arizona. Oh, God. Like, middle of Death Valley. Yes. In the desert. It's like you have the beach, but you don't have any of the ocean. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, so... Rolling into this week's story, as I said, we're going to be starting in Bay, Michigan, ah, Bay, Michigan City. Yes, (laughs) this is going great. We're going to be starting in Bay City, Michigan. Mm -hmm. Uh, Back in 1925, John Frederick and Alma List welcomed their only child, John Emil, which... uh, I, I had to put John Frederick and John Emmold because technically he's not a John Jr. because his middle name is different. So it's going to be a little confusing. So I mostly just refer to his dad as his father instead of John. Um, but yes, so John Emmel List was born on September 17th, 1925. He was the only child of John and Alma but he did have two half-siblings on his father's side. His father was 28 years older than his mother, which I'm not going to judge. It just struck me as very odd. Um, But he was a devout Lutheran. He owned a little grocery in Bay City and was known to be very, very cold and strict. So he wasn't the happy-go-lucky type. I, um, before you continue, I do want to mention that, uh, I was very curious about Bay City and I had to look it up. Technically, Bay City is, is not right up against the Bay. It's not far from the Bay, but technically you can't get to the Bay from Bay City. You've got to go to another small township (laughs) to actually get to the Bay. I mean, at least it's close, I guess. I mean, it has a river that comes from the Bay. I guess that's something. I'm going to Bay City, and then I'm going to promptly leave Bay City to go to the Bay. <laughs> anyway. I mean, who are we to judge? Fair enough. I just thought it was funny. No, I think it's hilarious. Uh, so, uh, John's mother, Alma, was very overprotective and dominating. There were stories I had seen from his hometown uh, people that grew up with him, grew up in the neighborhood, etc., that talked about him not being allowed to play with other children, and he was not popular. He did not have a lot of friends, even through high school. He did graduate from Bay City Central High School in 1943 and immediately enlisted into the U.S. Army. So this is interesting because uh, there, I as I was researching this, I noticed there are some similarities between this guy and Dennis Rader, which is the last story that I covered on this on the show. Mm-hmm. You know, both army vets, both had multiple degrees, uh, you know, both had families, wives, etc. Uh, this story does take a very different turn, but it, it was very interesting to see some of the similarities. And that's that's interesting too, is like I know it's not all of them, but like there's a good few that we've talked about on the show that were in the U.S. Army and had a bunch of degrees and mm-hmm. were doing well for themselves. Yeah, yeah, and then decided to, uh, you know, murder. They, they thought they needed to spice things up a little bit. Yeah, that's not how you spice up your life. No, it's not. Listen. I mean, it is, but it's not a good way to do it. No, just listen to the Spice Girls. They have a song about it. It's one of my favorites. Fair enough. I'll tell you how to spice up your life. I don't, do you know that song at all? I don't think I do. It doesn't make sense to me. I have no idea what the, like, they they talk about, like, acceptance and diversity and stuff like that. And then they're like, slam it to the left. Shake it to the right. And I'm like, what does that have to do with anything? 
But it's a good song. It's very catchy. It's a good tune. So, so if, if we need to spice up your life, just slam into the wall to your left and then just like proceed to fall over to the right and then just start shaking. I mean, that is one way to spice up your life. <laughs> In the army, he served as a lab technician through World War II and was honorably discharged in 1946. It was at this point that he enrolled in the University of Michigan. He earned a bachelor's degree in business and administration and a master's degree in accounting while serving as second lieutenant in the ROT, ROTC. RTO, I think I spelled that wrong. I think it's ROTC, right? I'll look that up. Yes, it is. R-O- it's ROTC, but it's close enough. The C-O-T-R, the T-O-R-C, you know, it's all, it's all the same thing. We, the point's still there. <laughs> the point is there. He was then recalled into active service in 1950 during the Korean War. While stationed in Fort Eustis in Virginia, he met Helen Morris Taylor, who was a widow and a mother. Then in 1951, John and Helen married before he was reassigned to the financial corps of the army and the family moved to California. The marriage was a little rushed because of a pregnancy scare, and they held it in Maryland. Right, I guess they, you know, right over the Maryland-Virginia border or something like that. Then, after completing the second tour in 1952, they relocated outside of Detroit in Kalamazoo. I just love that that's a real place. That sounds like a place I would live. It does. It does. Also, like, I know, like, that comes with being in the army, but it it just sounds kind of funny that a lot of the stories that we read that are, like, from, like, the 1950s, 1960s, in that time frame, it's like, people just move from state to state, just, like, nobody's business. It's just like, you know what? I'm feeling Arizona today. I think I'm going to go to Arizona. Well, this story does highlight how some things have changed over the years. As we get into it, we, we can kind of talk about it, too, but... There are things that happen in this story that could not happen today just because of the way, um, you know, identity is now protected. Um, you know, everything is documented. Every, like, there's so much culturally, technolo- technologically and everything, but it's like, holy, holy moly, how did this happen? But. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, John and Helen welcomed their daughter, Patricia, in 1955, their son, John, in 1956, so this is John Jr., and their son, Frederick, in 1958. Then, in 1960, uh, I mentioned that Helen had a daughter, well, I said she was a mother. She had a daughter named Brenda, and in 1960, Brenda got married and left home. This same year... John got a job for Xerox, so he was in accounting and financial stuff. I am very bad in that realm. I don't understand any of that. Like, I don't know. So he was some kind of finance guy. Even more shocking that, like, yeah, it, to me it's shocking that I know he's got, like, all the degrees and everything, but, like, to me it's just... He just got a job in Xerox with accounting and stuff like that. And I'm just like, do you like now that that job would require like 50 years of experience? Pretty much. Pretty much. You don't just get that job anymore. Well, I I mean, he this was he had he did have some experience, uh, like professional experience. He he worked for the financial corps of the army. He also this would have been like 10 years after he got his degrees and stuff like that. So he did work his way up. But yeah, he just he just got a job for Xerox and uh, the family, no big deal. the family then moved to Rochester, New York, kind of, again, working his way up the corporate ladder, I guess. A few years later, in 1965, he got a vice president position at a bank in Jersey City, Jersey City, New Jersey. So the family relocated one more time. Uh, they... This time, um, they settled into a 19-bedroom Victorian mansion named Breeze Knoll in Westfield, New Jersey, which is a very affluent neighborhood not far from Jersey City. The house... It sounds like a very fancy place. Oh, yeah. The house had an original Tiffany skylight in the ballroom 
valued over $100,000 at the time. In today's money, that's almost a million dollars just for the skylight. Yeah, this man had money. Yeah. Well, he was in finance and he was a vice president. It, with that vice president comment, I, I literally thought for a minute you were about to say he even became vice president once <laughs> or ran for vice president. Yeah, he ran the country, you know. He was a, a banking vice president. But uh, in 1944, not long after John had graduated high school, his father passed away. So at this point, now his mother was still on her own. She was getting older and they had this huge house. So they moved her into an apartment up on the third floor. So she had her own kitchen, her own bathroom, you know, her own little private space. But she was also still in the home with the family. So if she needed help or anything like that. Throughout his life, John had maintained the same religious values as his father, though, he was a devout Lutheran who attended church every week. He also became a Sunday school teacher, just like his father, and volunteered for the church quite often. Now, after 18 years of marriage, John learned that his wife was not always open and honest with him. Oh, no. In her first marriage, her first husband had given her tertiary syphilis, which is a non-contagious strain of the disease. So I guess he was contagious, but she was not. So she didn't pass this on to John, but she did have syphilis. And uh, this was actually the reason that she pushed to get married in Maryland, because that was one of the few states that didn't have a mandatory syphilis screening for marriage at the time. That's very specific. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I... Was that that big of an issue? I guess, I mean, back then it was slightly different because, like, nowadays we do have different medications and stuff like that. We also, there's more education about it, and, you know, it's it's not the same type of problem that it used to be, but, uh, yeah, I guess most states at the time, they had a screening. (laughs) You had to get tested. Before you can get married, pee in this cup. (laughs) Well, she had, so I had seen her symptoms. I didn't see her actual diagnosis, but comparing her symptoms to the research that I did, which I will say, by the way, has probably royally screwed up my Google history. I mean, my Google history was already pretty screwed up, but then to go in a rabbit hole about syphilis was probably not a smart thing. Um, But she had either neurosyphilis or meningovascular syphilis both of them have very similar uh symptoms uh and things like that um and both cause dementia personality changes delusions seizures psychosis and depression she was even losing her eyesight from this disease and was closing in on legally blind um and then to make matters worse she was an alcoholic and a heavy, heavy drinker, which all this balled together. She was incredibly mean and unpleasant to be around. Those um, th- those symptoms like escalated very quickly. I was not expecting those symptoms. Well, um, there are there are a whole bunch of different types of syphilis yeah. and some of them. So this is neurological that you know it deteriorates um other ones like physically deteriorate your body um to the point that some people would be unrecognizable uh after fighting the disease so it's it's pretty scary (laughs) you also make the mistake on your google deep dive on this subject of hitting the images button i mean i do that all the time also yeah well i mean why do you think Chris doesn't like to come in and see my computer screen? Because it's usually like dead bodies or something like. So basically he just knocks on the door and is like, are you on the computer? If so, I won't come in. Like, is it safe to come in here? Is your computer family friendly? Yeah. Yeah. Usually crime scenes aren't family friendly. Well, I mean, back in the day, you know, executions were like a public thing. So, I mean. 
They were entertainment, yeah. Yeah. Well, it was actually funny. Chris and I were having a conversation not that long. I guess it was like maybe last week or something like that. I There's a meme where it's like, the other day could have been anywhere from yesterday to my birth. I, I, I have no track of time whatsoever. But the other day, Chris and I were talking and like he doesn't, he's not into true crime the way that I am. Mm-hmm. But he he does he like he understands because like for him he likes you know death metal and slasher movies and that kind of stuff so his is more fictional based yours is more reality based yeah but throughout history mankind is obsessed with the macabre Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's just whether it be like you said watching executions or like in when we covered Bell Gunnis, where it turned into basically a carnival outside of the crime scene. Um, there's there's actually a story. I never remember what it's called because I would like to cover it, but I don't remember what it's called. It happened in Europe, I think, uh, back in like the Victorian age. But uh, a couple, a young couple was killed by a tree and people came and took pieces of the tree as souvenirs to the point that the tree was gone and it wasn't a little tree all right then you know we like to be scared we like to think about what's lurking in the dark yeah yeah so for this i i get into what is actually the the real monsters the non-fiction monsters Whereas, you know, other people hide in the fictional monsters and things. The non-fiction monsters that hopefully are not in your closet or under your bed. Yeah, but when we covered Raider, you were like, yeah, you know. And now I constantly fear that. You're going to have to refresh my memory on that one because that was the other day. So what did I say? (laughs) It was the other day. Uh, When you're like, yeah, you know, what if there's somebody who just like hides in people's houses? Oh, yeah, yeah. Like that's all they do. Yeah, like, uh, if they're good at what they do, like, then they're not going to get caught because they're not taking anything. They're not hurting anyone. They're just being weird and going in someone's house and just watching them for a little bit. Why did I have to bring this back up? This is my fault. This is my own fault. I wonder if that's what Wedge is scared of when he just starts running for no reason. No, usually that means he has to poop. <laughs> Man, same. <laughs> well, yeah, like, he'll go and just tear out of the room run back in, run back out, and then run to the bathroom and use the litter box. And I'm like, okay, bud. Fair enough. Helen would privately and publicly demean John to the point of pretty much being verbally abusive. Uh, Apparently in public, she would... she would basically say how her husband was better, her first husband was better in bed, how, you know, and just like tear him down and then due to her health she started to not attend church every week and then just like tailed off until i guess she wasn't attending at all and then this is when things really start turning towards the weird in 1971 john got laid off from the bank and didn't tell anyone He was so embarrassed that he would get up every single morning, get dressed, take his briefcase, and leave the house, and then either go to interviews to try to get other jobs, or just sit at the train station and read the newspaper until it was time to go home. Yeah, that's a little odd. He uh, apparently did get and lose a few jobs, and um, from different interviews with various former co-workers and that throughout the years they said he was just really cold and unlikable like he was not a likable dude and that lack of social skills is ultimately why he would lose these jobs like he was a great financial mind but because he couldn't adjust to the social situations of a workplace he was often let go Basically, he just didn't work well with others. Yeah, pretty much. But he was the only income for the family. Because Helen did not, and probably at this point could not work because of her health. So, 
to pay the mortgage, he emptied out his mother's bank account slowly, but the home was on the verge of foreclosure. At this point, he had the kids, because they were teenagers, uh, I guess they were between 13 and 16 or something like that. He had them get part-time jobs, and he used the the cover of them learning responsibility. Yeah, because that's how that works. When I was a teenager, I had to get a job to, to learn about how to not, you know, learn a work ethic. You know, you go to work every day, you put in your best, um, and then when you get money, you know... Mm-hmm. My my dad's biggest thing was like, if you save ten dollars from every paycheck, you'll be you'll be surprised how quickly that adds up. And he's right. I'm only just now realizing that. <laughs> well, well, not just now, but like, well, I didn't learn anything from my first job just up to how awful it was. <laughs> that was all I learned. Yeah, I was like, this is awful. Anyway, where did my paycheck go? All right, I bought things. Yeah, yeah. So. I do understand that getting a job when you're younger and understanding some of those different things before you leave home and have to pay all your own bills and all of the things that I wish I didn't have to do now. Mm -hmm. I I do understand that. So it is a viable reason to tell the kids to get part-time jobs. But the actual reason, he wasn't trying to be a good father and teach them things. Money. He he wanted them to buy their own shit. <laughs> yeah. While they they had a very strict religious upbringing, very similar to their father, uh, the kids were happy. They were supposed supposedly very well liked in school. Um, I guess uh, to the point of even being considered popular. Patricia, the oldest, wanted to be an actress, and she would go to drama class. And I I don't know if she was like in like a drama club or anything like that, but she did have a drama teacher who, um, from what I read, she was, you know, pretty, you know how, like, you have the the teachers that you're not close to, like, you're not buddies, but like, you know, like your favorite teacher or whatever. You know them a little more than Yeah, exactly. Also, I would like to point out, any class can be a drama class. It just depends on your ability to spread rumors. Oh, cracko. And John Jr. played soccer. Fair enough. This is this is how I avoid you. Understandable. And this week on the podcast, Mo had her own true crime when she found Cracko and strangled him. Good luck finding me. I'm in the walls. <laughs> I always have to look for your frog slippers. They stick out. I'm going to make a meme of that later. Oh no! I'm gonna make a mental note of that. So yeah, the the kids and they were they were normal. They were happy. They seemed well adjusted. On November 9th of 1971, John took the kids to school as usual, and then he returned home. And while he was still in the car, he began loading bullets into both of his firearms. One was a 9mm Stayer 1912, and the other was a Colt 22 revolver. He then walked into the house and found Helen at the kitchen table drinking her morning coffee and shot her in the head. That that escalated very quickly. I was just waiting. Uh, you were either going to say it escalated quickly or that took a turn. Yeah, both. Mm-hmm. I I am sorry, but it gets worse. Oh, I have a, I, I had a feeling it got worse. Yeah. So he then went upstairs to his mother's apartment and did the same thing. He then left two dead bodies in the house and went to the post office to put a stop on the family's mail. He left a note for the milkman that they were going to be out of town for a while and needed to stop service. He went to the bank and withdrew what little bit of money was left. He then returned home and called the kids' school and said that the family was going to be out of town for a few weeks to go to South Carolina and care for Helen's sick mother. Once he had all of that taken care of, he placed Helen's body on a sleeping bag and drug her into the ballroom. He later said that he didn't move his mother because she was too heavy to carry down from the third floor. All right, then. 
And this part, yeah, this 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 is probably the hardest thing that I had processing in this whole horrible story. While waiting for the children to come home, he made himself lunch. It, it, okay. Patricia arrived home first, followed by Frederick. And as each one walked in the door, he shot them in the head and then took their body into the ballroom on a sleeping bag. At this point, John went to watch John Jr.'s soccer game and then drove the boy home. Supposedly, John Jr. was his favorite kid, his favorite child. Um, but as they entered the home, he shot him. But John Jr. fought back and struggled. So his father emptied both guns into his body and killed him. I just can't imagine like how the the brain human brain can make you do this. Just act like nothing's wrong. You just committed a couple of murders and then made lunch and then committed a few more murders and then you're just going to watch a soccer game. Mm-hmm. And then kill the kid, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> we do go over some of the. I don't want to say because this there there is no. There's no reason for somebody to do something like this. This is not, there is no, there's nothing logically that would say this, but um, between some mental illness and um, various factors and stuff like that, which we'll go into, he, like to him, he had to do this. But he didn't at the same time. Oh, he absolutely did not have to do this, but he thought this was the only way. So he lined the bodies up in the ballroom on the sleeping bags, and he had the three children lined up next to each other, like laying, I guess, parallel, and then their mother across the top. I don't know the significance of that formation or... Uh, but they were like in like a little square it was kind of weird yeah and that's when he went and he cleaned up the kitchen he um he actually um eventually when police get there we'll go over all that but he had bags of bloody paper towels just like really neatly put all together for the trash um, there was a bloody mop left behind, like cleaned, like ringed out and stuff like that, but it still had some blood in it and things like that. Um, but like he cleaned all of the blood off the floors, you know, made sure the house was nice and tidy. He then turned the thermostat all the way down so that the bodies would be preserved. And he turned the radio to a classical station. I believe it had very religious overtones. Um, And then he kind of went through the house and just turned the lights on so it looked like people were home and doing things and yada yada. Yeah, that just sounds like full-on mental breakdown. Because can you imagine when when someone found this, they just walk in, it's just freezing cold, there's classical music playing, and then... The ballroom just has that laid out in it. The police that found this actually did say they said it was like a scene from a horror movie. It, it sounds like it. Yeah. Um. So at this point, he went into the study and wrote a letter to his pastor confessing what he did. He did not mail it. He just left it on the desk. But it... Um, uh, and the the letter is out there. Um, I did read it. It was published in the newspaper and things like that. So it's not like you have to go and actually read the handwriting and look at creepy stuff. Um, but he confessed to everything he did and why he did it. And then <clears throat> this is another weird, like, there's a lot of weird things that happen. But he went through the house and through every single photograph and cut himself out of the photos so that police would have a harder time finding him. 
And this is this is one of the things that I had mentioned about, you know, modern day versus back in the 70s. You know, right now, your picture's everywhere. There's millions of copies. They're digital. It's hard. Like, even if you delete them, they're not actually gone. Yeah, even if you didn't have that, like, can't you just look up records of, like, who owns the house and... Yeah, but his... I think the only photo that police had was his driver's license, which was from a few years before all this happened. Fair enough. This is one of those weird things. It's like they the the photo of him was the key thing that would keep them from or make it harder for them to find him. There's something else that makes it harder for them. Anyway, we'll we'll, we'll keep going. Uh, but at this point, he got in his car and disappeared. Even more afraid after that, but all right. Well, he he set it all up. This was very meticulously done. He, you know, the kids weren't expected in school. The mail wasn't going to be piling up. The milkman wasn't going to be coming by and just leaving milk over and over and over again. Uh, you know, everything was thought out and done so that they wouldn't be looked for at all for weeks. No one expected them to be around for weeks. Weeks go by. More time goes by. Neighbors, the church, the children's teachers start to get suspicious. And slowly, all of the lights that he left on start burning out. The light bulbs burn out, etc. But if you ventured near the house, you could still hear the eerie classical music playing. Oh, so now, now it's even worse. It's a dark house with the classical music playing. Wonderful. So eventually, police were contacted. And on December 7th of 1971, they discovered what had happened. The bodies had been there for 29 days. I bet that was just, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, like I said, officers described the whole scene like something from a horror movie with the classical music playing. It was cold. It was dark. And there were these decomposing corpses lined up meticulously within this beautiful grand ballroom. Yeah, that's that's horrifying. It is. I probably would have walked in, saw that, and just been like, all right, I'll be outside. You guys need me. I'm no longer a police officer. Bye. I'm just going to lay my badge right here. Uh, I'm going home. Um, added onto this, both murder weapons were left at the scene. He did clean up the blood, but he didn't take any forensic countermeasures with, like, fingerprints or his identity. He signed the letter, John List. Like, the, he he admitted he did this. It was him. Here's my name, my fingerprints, all my DNA, but you know what you're not getting? My photo. It, it's so weird. It is so weird. This is when police discovered the letter to the pastor. Within the letter, he admitted to the financial hardships. He said that they lived beyond their means and he feared bankruptcy. He didn't want his children to live in poverty and feared what living on welfare would do to them and their religious values. He also noticed, noticed, he noted uh, Patricia's interest in acting and how it was going to pull her away from Christianity. Uh, apparently, he thought that acting and um because i didn't see if she wanted to be like a film actress a stage actress anything like that or if it was just acting in general yeah. but it was to him it was immoral immoral Im immoral one of those words yeah well it's spelled with an i so probably immortal moral more and then he also mentioned that Helen's not going to church anymore was going to hurt the children's attendance and they were going to stop going to church. He said that he killed them to preserve their place in heaven because he saw that they were starting to stray from the religious path. Okay. Yeah. Now, I I do not have problems with religion. I, you know, I I don't care what you practice, what you believe what you have faith in. I have issues when killing is involved. 
Yeah. Especially the killing of innocents. Like, these were... It was a... It was a bunch of young teenagers. Like, they had so much ahead of them. At this point, he had a month's head start on police. And they, they didn't even know where to look. They had no idea. Where would he go? What would he do? You know, he had what little savings were left at a month's head start, and he was gone. Yeah, that, that might have helped him just a little bit. Just a little bit, yeah. But also, uh, with with his, the finance issues and stuff, this is going to sound funny, but either just sell the whole house or at least sell the ballroom. Yeah, sell that skylight. Yeah. Anybody want a brand new skylight? You know, I need some money. Yeah, well, the bank was going to foreclose on it. So... I, I don't know, like, yeah, you sell, sell the house or tell the family what happened. Like, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, then you, then you can agree on moving to something smaller and cheaper than the designer mansion. Yeah, uh, the 19 room mansion. I don't know. Like, I find it hard to believe that. Because the family was happy, they they were relatively happy, minus the fact that you know his wife was very ill and out, you know, lashed out and things like that. But the kids seemed great, so like, I feel like they would have understood. Yeah, I, I don't see anything in that that's like they wouldn't be understanding. The kids weren't like spoiled rich kids, so like they're not going to be like, no, we don't want a smaller house. Like they probably would have been like, okay, cool. Can I stay in the same school? I don't want to lose my friends. But even that, kids would have got... That would probably be literally their only concern. Yeah, and like, the, even that, kids get over that. Like, you know what I mean? You, yeah. you find, like, the telephone existed. <laughs> you know, you can call people and things like that. But... Yeah. Um, yeah, so they found his car at JFK. But they... He, and again... I mentioned the the time difference or the you know era difference. Um, they couldn't track where he went. You know he didn't buy a ticket with his name, mm -hmm. and there they didn't have this type of surveillance back then. They didn't have the security clearances. You know you you get on a plane with a fake name and you're gone. Yeah, but now, like you said, with the different times and stuff, like. I've never gone into an airport and bought a ticket for a flight that day, like the, like the next flight or anything like that. So I don't know how that works, but I'm, I'm I would imagine you need an ID. Nowadays, definitely, yeah. Yeah. You need um, you need identification to buy the ticket. You also um, to get through TSA. Yeah, I forgot about that too. I was going to say TSA. You have to give them your ID and stuff. So fake name wouldn't exactly work. Yeah, you would have to have a like. I don't even know if you could get through with a fake ID. But yeah, you you need identification, paperwork. The only fake ID you would get through with is like something that was made by someone who really knows what they're doing. Yeah, like like a super expensive forgery or something like that, yeah. yeah. But yeah, nowadays this could not have happened. They would have found out where he flew to. Now, he could have like nowadays it's possible he could have flown somewhere and then driven somewhere or, you know, something yeah. like that. But, um, yeah, like he didn't use his name. It was the seventies. So they lost him. And it actually was the start because they, they knew without a doubt that John list committed five murders, four murders, wait, three kids, wife, mom, five murders. Um, they knew it was him. He signed a confession. He left the murder weapons. They had his fingerprints. And they were able to match the fingerprints at the house, on the weapons, and everything like that, to his military records. So they knew 100% it was him. They just didn't know where he was. So there was a 50-state manhunt. Um, all police stations were alerted of him, on the lookout, um, trying to find him and i wonder how that worked too did they just call every single police station that i don't know 
I do not know how that happened because when were fax machines invented? That's a good question. I know they were big in the 80s, but I don't know if they were around in the 70s. I will figure that out. So the case went cold for 17 years. In that time, police kept it alive, kept it public knowledge with news stories, calls for public help, you know, tip lines, etc. I believe he was even on the FBI's most wanted list, etc. But they found nothing. Um, I think we talked about this back with the, the Raider case, actually, about how, you know, back then, it's not like, you know, not like these days when somebody's everywhere. You see them everywhere. You see their picture, you hear the news, etc. Back then, it was a little different. Yeah. So, real quick, one, it's, it's a little funny, the kind of thing that I found. Um, so, yes, they could have faxed it wirelessly. Um, cause what, what time around, what year did you say this was? 1971. Yeah. So the Xerox corporation introduced the, for what's like the first <laughs> commercialized version of the modern fax machine in 1964. I wonder if he had anything to do with like finance, you know, the finances for them to develop that or something. I mean, with the time he possibly could have. That's crazy. Oh God. I helped them finance fax machines, which ended up getting me caught. Actually, they didn't. So, um... In my story, it does. Just wait, just wait. Um, so, they got no leads. They, they, they had no idea where he went. Uh, they developed two theories. One was that he either committed suicide after he had done this, and, um... I did actually look into these types of killers. We'll go into a lot of detail there, but this is a stat that I didn't include. Um, 68% of people who murder their entire family like this will then kill themselves. So they thought he could have committed suicide or he relocated somewhere in the Midwest their psychological profile, and they did work with the FBI on this, uh, outlined a man who killed out of anger and retaliation for his own failures. Then, after 17 years, investigators decided to take a chance. In 1989, they reached out to the television show America's Most Wanted. At the time, this would be the oldest case they had covered, but the show agreed to air the story. They understood the gravity of this. I mean, this guy brutally murdered his entire family and disappeared. Now, I don't know, because you're a youngin. I know you were alive at the... I think you were alive in 1989. Oh, God, you weren't alive. No. No. Lord. God, I'm old. Have you ever seen America's Most Wanted? Yeah, I've seen, like, reruns and stuff of it. I... I used to watch it all the time. You understand the concept. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. But what they would do is, after they covered the story, they would show a photo of the suspect um, with the tip line and, you know, if you have any information, yada yada. But the only photo they had of him was way over 20 years old. And I'm not sure if you know this, but you change a lot in 20 years. Really? Is that how that's supposed to work? Uh, apparently it doesn't work for me, but, um... <laughs> hmm. Fair enough. I think I told you I got carded in Florida. I forgot about that. I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, are you, are you kidding me? It's a compliment. I'm in my 40s. It is a compliment. It is a compliment. Um, but yeah, so... They, it was, he was 20 years old. And, um, the show brought in... A man named Frank Bender, who is a forensic sculptor who worked in skull reconstruction, which you've probably seen on like the, mm -hmm. the, the you know, criminal minds or uh, law and order uh, CSI, where they, they have the skull and they put the little markers on for the tissue depth. And then they, they sculpt the face to see what the person would have looked like. Yes. Um, yeah. So he is an expert in forensic sculpting. And he also 
does suspect aging busts. Uh, he spent years working with anthropologists, doctors, and police, and, you know, federal level, everything like that, to hone his skills. So he's the best of the best. So the thought that popped in my head from that... Oh, no. Imagine being a person who is good at, like, looking at skulls or looking at people and just knowing how they're going to age. So he just comes up to you and is just like, you really should be using a better foundation. It's like, but my skin's fine. What are you talking about? Not in 20 years, it won't be. <laughs> Maybe some SPF. You'll thank me later. So uh, for this case in particular, he teamed up with forensic psychologist Rick Richard Walter. Together, they looked at photographs of him. They looked at photographs of his parents to see how his parents aged. They also looked at his upbringing and his psychological profile to determine what, how would he take care of himself? How would he treat himself? Would he, you know, mm -hmm. would he have aged well? Would he have aged poorly? Would he have gotten plastic surgery? Would he, you know, trying to figure out what he would look like over 20 years and what wouldn't have changed. Um, like specifically, he wore glasses. So he was either going to be wearing glasses or contacts. Like that wasn't going to go away. Mm -hmm. One of the things I didn't put in here, but I did watch, there was a, a, a thing about this and it, they were talking to Frank Bender um, about this. And after he finished the bust, he knew he needed glasses. And he went to like a thrift store and was just going through a basket of old eyewear and things like that. And he picked out a pair. So they basically... Him and the psychologist had talked about it, and they were like, he would have worn dark framed glasses to make himself look more intelligent and important than he was, um, you know, just to make him stand out. So he picked out these glasses, and oddly enough, they were perfect. <laughs> So we'll, we'll go into this a little bit later, but um, he just looking at these, he got this vibe and he's like, I'm going to pick these, pick, I'm going to pick these glasses. I think I know where this is going, yeah. but we'll wait and see. So on May 21st, 1989, the episode aired nationally. Wanda Flannery and her daughter Ava were watching and they knew that guy, not Frank Bender, the guy in the bust, but his name wasn't John. It was a former neighbor named Bob Clark in Denver, Colorado. Uh, Bob was a volunteer at their church and even married another attendee, Dolores Miller, who was friends with Wanda. He was also an accountant, seemed like an okay guy. He would run um, a carpool for the church where if somebody needed a ride that was a church member, he would give him a ride, help him out, get him to church, get him to work. Imagine interacting with this man, let alone marrying him and then finding this out. Yeah, I, yeah, no. Add to my list of fears. Are you sure Chris's name is Chris? Don't you do. I know his, oh God, what if those aren't actually his parents? What have I done? Yay. Krakow gives Mel paranoia. What have I done? Uh, but Wanda told the tip line that he had recently, him and Dolores had recently moved to Richmond and Virginia, and now police had their first lead in almost 20 years and they were able to track him down. And guess what? He looked exactly like the bust by Frank Bender and to make it even eerier. He had glasses almost identical to the ones that Frank picked out. That man's really good at what he does. He is. Uh, there actually, it was on the front page of the New York Times, a comparison of a photograph of John List when he was caught and Frank Bender's bust. And it was the same guy. It looked like he literally sat there with the guy in front of him and sculpted while looking at him. Not going, not aging photographs and working with a psychologist. Like, that dude is, not only is he, 
good at his job, but he's a really good sculptor. It was beautiful, like beautifully done. It wasn't beautiful. Yeah. It's not like going to a museum and seeing, but like his his talent, his technique, his his artistry is top tier. Yeah, I just looked up a photo of it really quick, and yeah, that's that's identical. It's creepy. Yeah. So for the first month after his capture, he denied being John List. He had no idea who he was. It wasn't him. His name was Bob. But they had the fingerprint evidence. And once he found out just how much they had, he confessed that his, his true identity. He said, OK, I'm John List. And yes, it was me. So what had happened was after the murders, he made his way to Denver um, from what I had seen, he had kind of gone to Denver through some other cities. So like he flew to one city, flew to another city, kind of went over here, kind of went over there, but ended up in Denver. He got a new social security card under the name Robert Peter Clark. And this is just, I think it's the third thing now that nowadays you can't just get a social security card in your 40s yeah. out of nowhere with nothing. Like it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. When he, and this is, you had mentioned Dolores, his new, his second wife. When he met her, he told her that his first wife died of cancer and that he had no children. See, like, my memory isn't that good that, like, I couldn't just go by another name because someone would say, hey, Bob. And I'd be like, huh? What? Who's Bob? Who's Bob? <laughs> oh, right. Me. I'm Bob. Yes. Bob. It's me. Yes. How can I help you? <laughs> me. Bob. Is your name Bob now? Maybe. Mo and Bob. This is going to become a thing, isn't it? <laughs> we'll see if I remember. Actually, I'm going to write that down. Bob. You're going to write Bob on a piece of paper and be like, who is this? <laughs> yeah, I have, a, I have a piece of paper. It says disclaimer, really big, and then Bob. <laughs> disclaimer, Bob. That's the disclaimer. Just Bob. <laughs> I'm going to record I'm gonna record a disclaimer. I'm just going to be like, disclaimer, um, Bob. Yeah. At trial. He was convicted of five counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to five consecutive life sentences. Through the whole process, he never showed any remorse. And in an interview with Connie Chung, he said that the reason he didn't kill himself when he killed his family was so that he could make his way back to them in heaven. I, okay. I have some bad news for him. That's not how that works. Murder? is also against that. Yeah. He he paid attention in church, but he missed a few things. He's a little confused, but he got the spirit. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not quite not quite sure he understood that one. He's a little confused. Yeah. So I was saying about how he thought this was what he had to do. And that is because he was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive personality disorder, which is OCPD. He literally could only see two options, ridicule and embarrassment at losing their home and living on welfare and the possible repercussions of that and what it would do to the family or killing them. Those are the only options in his mind. Those are two very opposite ends of the spectrum. They are, but that's all like with OCD or OCPD, you know, you, you don't classify like everything is black and white. Mm-hmm. One or the other. That is that is what how he saw it. That's how he felt, and you know he wanted to save their souls, so he he would rather be seen as a murderer than poor. someone who had to get a smaller house. But this actually does line up with a lot of the research that has been done into family annihilator killers in a family annihilation, which is what this crime would be considered as, or also known as familicide. All members of the family are killed in a single instant. So, you know, it would be like the same day. A lot of times uh, these kind of get sort of lumped in with serial killers or spree killers because it is multiple murders by the same person. But a family annihilation is very different. Um, you know, even I the the first exposure I had to John List was a list of serial killers, even though he's not a serial killer. A serial killer has uh, multiple murders over a span of time. 
So it's, um, you know, you kill and then it's weeks or months or years and then again and then weeks or months or years and again. And it's not a bunch in, at one time. So the closest thing to a family annihilation would be a spree killer, which is where someone just goes and kills a lot of people in the same day or same few days. Mm -hmm. But what's different between a family annihilator and a spree killer is that family annihilators are specifically only killing their family. They are not going out on the street and shooting a gun. They are just removing their family. So it is a different classification. Now, a 2013 study, which is like the most recent in-depth study on family annihilation, um, found that 83% of these types of killers are men, with 50% of them being middle-aged, like John List. Usually they're between 30 and 40. He was in his early to mid-40s, but he was still middle-aged. Additionally, 57% of these killings are performed in the family home, just like this. Uh, the, the next common location after this, it was a pretty huge jump down in percentage, but it is a remote like country or wilderness mm -hmm. type area, which is, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Chris Watts, but he was a family annihilator who... Um, killed and dumped his family out in the middle of nowhere yeah that that name sounds familiar but i don't know the story it's pretty fucking awful yeah sounds like it so like this one this one got my attention because of the fact that he disappeared for 17 years uh in the chris watts story he's just a monster and i i'm not a violent person I want to punch him in the face. Yeah. Yeah. Why isn't that a punishment? Like, bring the stockade back. You get one good hit. Everyone line up. Then we have use for all of the tomatoes that are going bad as well. You can use your hand or you can use a tomato. In the wintertime, you could do a snowball with a center of ice. Yeah. Frozen water balloon. Oh, man, that would hurt. Uh, Professor Jack Levin of Northeastern University in Boston described a typical family annihilator as a middle-aged man who is a good provider and appears to neighbors and acquaintances as a dedicated husband or father. So, you know, in the, the case of John List, he provided for his family. He did, you know, all of the things that you think of a good father but yeah now studies have outlined uh the common triggers or causes for these types of crimes and they say it is often related to originally it was a list of four common and um in recent years more have been added to this uh, but it is usually because of something like a breakdown of the family relationship and issues with access to the children. So a divorce where the mother gets custody and the father doesn't get to see his kids or, you know, something of that effect. Mm -hmm. um, financial worry or uh, employment issues, which we saw in the list case. Uh, cultural honor killings. And I actually had to look into this one a little bit more because I, I was like, I think I know what that means, but I'm not sure. And this is a murder where you the killer is trying to protect their family and themselves from disgrace or dishonor. So like in this case, he wanted his family to go to heaven and he thought that they were doing things that were going to take them to a disgraceful or... Um, sinful route as well as the disgrace of losing their home additionally mental illness which he also had so he had three of those um and then substance misuse and a history of domestic violence why do i see this as uh, like you're eventually going to get really good at profiling people and you're just going to go go like you're going to be in public somewhere and you're going to see someone and be like that guy's ticking a lot of boxes that he shouldn't be. Uh, see, I worry that I'm going to get too paranoid and everybody's going to be ticking the boxes. That comes last. That comes last. Maybe I can solve a crime or two you got, in between. You get really good at it and then you're just like, you start picking up on things in public and then it becomes, wait, 
all these people are like this. <laughs> then I start calling the cops on my cats. Be like, I don't know. I I, I think I think there's some mental illness here. He just ran into a wall again. And they'll be like, ma'am, please hang up the phone. <laughs> Your cats do not have the brain cell. How do they have mental illness? Okay, fair. I mean, the twins share a brain cell. <laughs> a lot of times towards the end of the stories, I talk about how they file for appeals and, you know, try to get out on parole or get released early. Mm -hmm. uh, John List passed away in 2008 after complications from pneumonia while still incarcerated. So he did serve the rest of his life in prison, and um, I am pretty sure he did not go to heaven. Yeah, I'm kind of doubting that one. So one of the things that I found in my research, this isn't part of my write-up or anything like that, but there is a uh, public access online repository about this story, um, case study type thing for educators as well as uh, true crime enthusiasts, I guess, where it's public access with a lot of information about this, uh, which I thought was really interesting. And, you know, they they have let stuff, they have put stuff out there uh, to help people mm -hmm. understand the story and see what's going on. So I thought that was kind of cool. But that, yeah, that's, that's cool. That's the story. Thanks. You're welcome. That's another one that I, I knew the name, but I didn't really know like the full story. Mm -hmm. Kind of wish I didn't know the full story. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm sorry. Thanks. Anyway, we're the podcast of the month for the podcast Nexus. If you guys want to check it out, there is a link on our homepage. And we will see you next time. I hope you have a fantastic rest of your week. And we love you guys very much. Hey, bye. As always, make sure to check out our website for all of the show notes, sources, and more information at thesquonkandthehag.com. And we would also love and appreciate your support by either leaving a review on iTunes or through small monthly donations using the viewer support link in the description. And if you don't subscribe, make sure to follow us on your favorite podcast network to get notified of new episodes every Thursday. All right, Krakow, you ready? Bye.